But let's turn to Romans 8. We'll be looking at 35 through 37. says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as, it is, just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we were overwhelmingly we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Let's just back up a little bit because everybody here has been here for a while. Um, I mean, been following along with us for a while in Romans 8. But um, a little bit of the review is, you know, we're in Romans 8 here. This is talking about the Spirit. Um, and if we can see right here from starting in uh, verse 29:30 to the end of the chapter, we're dealing with eternal security, that we are secure in Christ, um, and that's pretty much what Paul's been teaching us: is that we're secure in Christ. And this goes on and, and advances that a little bit there too. Um, but you remember our context: he's writing to the Romans, and he deals with in this in this chapter their suffering, and even in their suffering. He tells them that the, the, the whole creation groans waiting for that day that there will be no more suffering because there will be that day. And then he tells them that all these things, were all God is causing all these things to work together for your good. What are all those things that he's talking about? He was talking about mainly their suffering. I believe it's, it's much more than that, but it was mainly their suffering. They're going through suffering and God is causing those things to happen for your good. And we saw previously where he says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand, who also intercedes for us. So it's pointing, it's pointing to Christ here. The Holy Spirit, what's he doing? He's pointing us to Christ. That's the Spirit's ministry, right? In John 14, he tells us the Spirit's ministry, the Spirit, I will send forth the Comforter, the Comforter will come and he will testify of me. Not that he'll testify of himself. He will testify of Christ and that's what he's doing here. He's testifying of Christ. And he's saying because Christ was condemned in your place, because God delivered up Christ in your place, who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? If God has justified you, who can condemn you? And then he goes on here in verse 35 through 37. He's teaching us eternal security, but he's teaching us more than that. I have my three points here. Is, uh, the first point is the husband is faithful. The second point is the bride is secure. And the third point is the bride conquers through the husband. So the first point here is the husband is faithful from verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Once again, this ties us into what was previously said, but I think it broadens the picture for us. This here brings in an idea that we may not even have thought of since we've been in Romans. I mean, we've seen 
being justified. We've seen being glorified. We've seen having union with Christ, being adopted into the family of God. We've seen all these things. But I think this adds to it. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's not simply that we are justified, have union with him, and we're part of his kin. Even though all that is true. This word for separate brings out a new idea as well. Let's, let's look at another portion of scripture to help bring this out. Turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse 4. says, and he answered, talking about Christ, and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now that's a whole sermon in and of itself now, isn't it? And said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. There's a whole other sermon. But listen, consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate. Same word. Let no man separate. What's it talking about there? It's talking about divorce. It's the same idea. It's a divorce. What God has joined together in marriage, let no man divorce. It's the same thing in Romans 8. God has brought you in. You, as the church, are the bride of Christ. You are married to God. And as we've clearly seen in the previous five and six verses, this, that it was God's doing that you have been brought in. He has brought you in. God, it says, it's right there in Matthew 7, what God has joined together, God has joined you together with Him in covenant with Him. It's the same thing as a marriage. A marriage is a covenant. It's not just simply going, oh yes, I do. I, oh, I love you. But then tomorrow I don't love you anymore. And it's, I don't then. It's, it's the same thing. It's a marriage covenant. God has brought us in. He took rebels and changed them into his people. If God has brought us together, no man can separate us. The same idea as Matthew 19 there. If God has brought two together, let no man separate us. If God has brought us together as his church, as his bride, no man can separate us. No man can divorce us. He's also shown us how he's brought us together, right? He... By delivering up his own son, who died, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand, who also intercedes for us. That's how he did it. He delivered up his own son so he could bring you in together and make covenant with you and let no man separate that. You're married to God. He gave up his life for his bride. And therefore, who can separate his bride from him? The thought of that is absurd, isn't it? If God brought you in, if Christ married you, somebody else gets to come in to separate you? The omnipotent one? It's absurd. And it should be absurd in our marriages as well. If God has brought us together, who can separate us? Scripture actually gives us this picture too. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 
Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? Sounds exactly what Jesus just quoted in Matthew 19. This mystery is great, for I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Respect there actually means fear. That's a whole other sermon too. But it's a reference. The picture of your marriage is Christ and His church. That's the picture of marriage. It's Christ and His church. He laid down His life for His church, His bride, and therefore, husband, you ought to lay down your life for your wife, for your bride. That's the teaching. That's what Paul is doing. He's showing Christ came and laid down his life for the church. Therefore, husbands, you ought to do the same. Oh, I know what you say, but I'm willing to die for her, right? Praise God for that. But if you don't demonstrate it by living for her, who cares if you say you'd die for her? Oh, yeah, I'd die for her, but you ain't doing anything. People say this about Christ, right? I've never been that bold to say that. I'm scared to say that. Oh, I'll definitely die for Christ. Because I think sometimes if that, that, that sword came to my neck, I might say, oh, I'll, I'll forsake him. But not really, right? I outsmarted them. But if you're willing to die for somebody, you should definitely be willing to live for him, right? Or you ain't really ready to die for him. And Jesus didn't just die for his bride, did he? That wasn't the whole thing, right? It wasn't that Jesus just came and died for his bride. It was that he lived for her as well. He earned righteousness for us as well as died for our sins. He did both. I know the objection, right? But I can't love my wife like I love her. I can't love her like Christ did, right? Like Christ loved. I can't love her like Christ loved the church. It's impossible. Exactly. So you have a lot of work to do. And I know single men, don't, don't let this fall on deaf ears either. Because Lord willing, if the Lord bless you with a wife, this applies. 
That's not the main main point of this, though. That's a little side point, a little side nugget. It's free of charge, though. I give you a gift for my birthday. The main point is that this in Romans 8 is talking about nothing separating us from the love of God, nothing divorcing us from God. This truth that Paul is teaching here in Romans 8 is the real reason he wrote Romans 9. When we get there in a few weeks, it'll only be a couple weeks by the time we get there, we'll see that Paul wasn't simply going, I'm going to teach on election. That's not why he wrote Romans 9. He didn't write Romans 8 and go, I'm just going to teach on eternal security. There's not a systematic theology that he's writing. He's writing his exposition of the gospel. And in Romans 8, he's dealing with eternal security. And in Romans 9, he deals with election, but he doesn't deal with it in the sense that these Romans need to know what divine election is. In Romans 9, he's making the argument to counter those that say, well, if nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, what about the Jew? They've been separated. And as we'll see when we get there, but Paul makes it obvious that just because a person is named a Jew or from the loins of Abraham, it doesn't mean that they are a Jew. So Romans 9 is an answer to the objection made from this portion in Romans 8. This portion that says nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And then the argument arises, right? Something separates because the Jews have been separated. And he deals with that in Romans 9. We'll get there when we do. But nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, meaning nothing can divorce us from Christ, whom we are married to as the church. Now Paul goes on to demonstrate what he means by who shall separate us. The, the second point, the first point is the husband is faithful. He will keep you. Nothing will separate you. Nothing will divorce you. The second point is the bride is secure. Because we're married to Christ as His bride, as His church, we have security through all situations. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now, now if you hear me say that a hundred times during this service, Sorry, but I'm going to keep saying it. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The answer to all of these is obvious, right? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It's obvious none of that can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul goes to everything in the physical world here. You notice that. And then later on in the chapter, he deals with the, with, the, with the spiritual world. But he's dealing with the physical world right here. Nothing in the spiritual world can separate, or the physical world can separate you from the love of Christ. And everything he names here are things that give us anxiety. Right? Everything that could cause anxiety to a Christian. Tribulation cannot separate us. Distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Tribulation here, though it causes stress and anxiety to some, it should not for the Christian. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulations. He promised it. 
And we should expect it. Actually, I love this word, this word for tribulation, though. It gives us a better picture of what it means. And the word is philipsis, which means absolutely nothing to us in English. However, the word means pressure, or pressing, or pressing together. It actually comes from a word that means to press as grapes. Now, you start to see the picture, right? Tribulation, the picture of tribulation is one of a wine press, and you're the grape. Under pressure. You're under pressure, getting pressed together, and what comes out is something better than what started, right? It's something that's more valuable than what started. I mean, we could go, I can prove that it's more valuable. We can go to the store right now and buy a cluster of grapes for, what, $5? But you want you a nice bottle of wine, you're going to pay more than $5 for it. It's more valuable. And tribulation brings this out in us. But that also is not the false point of this right here. It's to demonstrate that that pressure, that pressing together, that squeezing out of you, cannot separate you from the love of Christ. No matter what the world brings, that pressure, that tribulation, it cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can. Nothing. Now, like I mentioned, Paul here is dealing with physical world and later he deals with the spiritual but nothing here, physically, can separate you. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. So any trial that you go through in this life that doesn't kill you, cannot separate you. And even the ones that do kill you, cannot separate you from the love of Christ. So no matter what you go through, whether you, if you go through famine, which is starvation, if you starve to death... You're still in the love of Christ. Or sword. Now these early Christians were facing this, right? They were facing sword. They were facing it on a regular basis. This is why Paul says, and it's quoted a lot where he says, I die daily. What he meant by that is I, fa I physically face death every single day. Every single day I'm out here preaching and somebody's trying to kill me. I face death daily. As these Roman Christians were also. Hence verse 36. Where it says. For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Roman Christians were facing death. And just remember, it wasn't but a few verses before Paul was dealing with the sufferings they were going through. So they were suffering and being put to death all the day long, it says. But then he tells them that God causes all those things to work together for their good. You almost have to be... You're either a Christian who believes the Word of God, or you are a madman to think that all of that stuff works together for your good. Right? Either God is either working all these things together for my good as a Christian, or you're just crazy because all that stuff doesn't work together for good to those outside of Christ. And now he's telling them that all those things they're facing, being worked together for your good, all those things, they can't separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And these verses are here to comfort Christians.
As a reformed person, the fact of your eternal security should give you rest. You should not be distressed. It should give us rest. You, you should be at peace because you have peace with God. I have peace with God. I don't need... It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters, right? And you are in Christ and nothing in this life and not even an end of your life will separate you from Him. In other words, no matter what this world throws at you, Christian, you should know that you are loved by the one who never changes. If He loves you, nothing can change that. It's an everlasting, eternal love. That's what the Father has. That's what God has for His people. It's an everlasting, eternal love. When does that end? When does everlasting love end? When does eternal love end? It cannot end. And this is a love that the world doesn't know. This is a love that we wouldn't know if God wouldn't have loved us first, right? We only love Him because He first loved us. This love that nothing can separate us from. We fallen humans don't even have this kind of love unless God gives it to us. If God doesn't give us this kind of love, we do not have this. We love ourselves, right? And we say that we fall in and out of love to people all the time. You hear that? I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, we fell out of love. No, you didn't. First, you were probably never in love in the first place. And second, you didn't see it as a covenant before God. You saw it as a piece of paper. We're fickle, right? We change. God is not. He does not change. He is what is called immutable. That means He's never changing. He's never changed. One bit. That, doesn't even, that can't even sit right in our minds, right? Because we can't understand this. That God from all of eternity, from eternity past, all the way to, through eternity future, which doesn't even really make sense in our minds either. He's never changed one bit. Just like He's never had a new thought. You know what a blessing it is to be loved by the Almighty God. By the Creator of all the worlds. And He has a very specific love for you. It's not this, uh, you know, just God loves, just loves everybody. God has a specific love for His elect. For those that are in Christ Jesus. And why and how? Because they're in Christ Jesus. God the Father loves His Son, and if you're in His Son, He loves you. And love like grace is not something God has to display to you. God does not have to display His love or grace to you, but He chooses to. He loves you even though you're not lovable. He loves you even while you're yet a sinner. Right? We saw Romans 8, or Romans 5 8. Where it says, God demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's how love is demonstrated to us. That's how it's shown to us. And He loves you the same when you've fallen on your face. Or when you're obeying Him. It doesn't matter. God's love does not change. Whether you, I had a good week, I obeyed God. I can't, I mean, I sinned, of course, but I, I mean, I had a pretty good week. God doesn't love you anymore than the week when you do nothing. 
We don't know that kind of love. That's not the kind of love we have, is it? If your partner did not pay attention to you for one week, never spoke one word to you, didn't even look at you, that love might change. God's doesn't. You know why? Because his love is rooted in his son. And he could as soon not love his son as he could not love you if you're the elect of God. I could preach a whole message on that just right there. But let's move on. So we saw the, the husband is faithful, the bride is secure. Now the third point is the bride conquers through the husband. In verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. If the love of God isn't through all these, through all this right here, this ain't in my notes. But it's just you see it over and over again. God's love for his people, God's love for his children, God's love for his church. But he knows it says, but in all these things. All the things that Paul just mentioned. All the physical world coming against you. That's what it's talking about. All these things are tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. All those things we are more than conquerors. We are, or the NASB, I'm quoting KJV, it's just ingrained in my mind. And I'll probably say it multiple times. More than conquerors, what KJV says. But it says, overwhelmingly conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. In all those things. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The word here for overwhelmingly conquer or more than conquerors comes from a word that we actually know. Now, it won't sound like we know it when I say it in the Greek. But it's hupernakaya. Hooper Nikeo. Hooper Nikeo. <laughs> A compound word. The first is Hooper, which means over, beyond, surpassing, above, or exceedingly above. The second word is Nikeo, from whence we get our word Nike. It means to overcome. To prevail, to get the victory. That's where they get the word from, Nike. It comes from Nikeo in, in the Greek. So it's to get the victory exceedingly above, above. To go beyond overcoming. In other words, it's not just to win, but to super abundantly win. To go beyond, to go over, to go super above winning. Now this ain't Joel Osteen message here. But it's to far surpass winning or conquering. Though it looks like a loss for them, right? When you if you were to if you were to tell, tell somebody, or maybe you wrote it on your job application or something, you know, my experience is I've been through tribulations and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. They say, man, you're a loser. Right? You've done nothing. You, you're a loser. And that, that's what it looks like. It looks like you're losing. 
when you go through this stuff. But Paul, what does he say? You're abundantly winning. You're super abundantly conquering. You're going above that. Even though it looks like the opposite. To the world outside looking in, to you in tribulation, the world says, what did you do to God? But God says, you're overwhelmingly conquering. You are going further than just conquering. You're super conquering. And Paul tells us how, again. It's not just that you go through this stuff and you're overwhelmingly conquer, but it says, through Him. You overwhelmingly conquer through Him. This is the only way. People that go through this, these, this list here, the people that go through this in the name of Buddha or Allah or the Pope or Joseph Smith or any other person, they're not more than conquerors. They're just simply losing their life and going to hell. They are losing. However, you Christians who are living for Christ and going through these things are more than conquerors. For even if they take your life, what does that mean? Like Paul, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you not desire to be present with the Lord? Isn't that not what we all want as Christians? I want to be present with the Lord. Paul says to me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? He overwhelmingly conquered through him to the point of his death by martyrdom. Paul's the one who wrote this. Paul went to his death and got his head chopped off because he believed this and tells them we're overwhelmingly conquering you Roman Christians right now who are losing your life and losing your loved ones you are more than conquerors right now this is the story of many Christians throughout the ages right and guess what we will meet these Christians one day you ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? You gonna read, if you read through the Fox's Book of Martyrs, no, you're going to meet those people one day. And I'll tell you one thing that you will not see on their face is regret. They will not regret being a martyr for the name of Christ. They will truly know and agree that God works all these things for our good and for His glory. Even these things. And we should not simply be happy, but be honored to be called one of God's children. To be adopted into His family. To be in the love of God. To be called His bride. This is a privilege that not all have. And it's one that should make you desire to serve Him more. So I'm going to close this doctrinal, doctrinal portion and this move on to the application. But in closing, what have we learned? Probably nothing. <laughs> that we are married to Christ. The church is considered his bride and, and he laid down his life for her. By no means will he lose her. No matter what this world throws at you, you are safe and secure in the arms of Christ. And you overwhelmingly, abundantly conquer in these things through him who loved you.
Though you could face death on a daily basis, which we don't really do here in America, but even if you did, you can rest in the fact that you're in Christ and can do all things through Him. Amen. Application here, the first call to faith and repentance. A call to faith and repentance. Like always to the unbeliever, one in here that doesn't know Christ, probably sat here and heard a message that you didn't understand anything. It all sounded like gibberish. I actually did that myself many times and wondered why people would go to church. I just thought it was to make themselves feel better about themselves. And though that is true for some, that would have never brought me to church. I would have never came to church if it was just to feel better about myself. It wasn't until 1999 when I sat in a jail cell that God gave me eyes to see and ears to hear the beautiful message of salvation. Not simply to feel good about myself, but to recognize that I was a sinner and worthy of hell. And not just that, I was worthy of hell, but He gave us a law and I couldn't keep it. I wasn't just breaking the laws of men while I sat in jail. I was breaking the law of God. Yet, as I already quoted, God demonstrated His love for me while, while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. God sent His Son to keep the law in my place. He was born of a virgin, kept the law perfectly for His people. Jesus never sinned, only did that which is right and good. He then went to a Roman cross and was murdered by the hands of men for sins that He didn't commit. And though with physical eyes, that's all we would have seen, right? If you would have been there that day, the only thing that you would have seen physically was that Jesus was being crucified by Romans. However, with spiritual eyes, it was the Father who sent Him forth. We already saw that a couple weeks ago. The Father sent Him forth. He delivered Him up. He crushed Him in my place, in your place as a Christian. Why? Because of sin was against God, and the punishment must come from God. God is the one who punishes, and He punished His Son on that cross for the sins of His people, for His bride, to take away sin. Then rose from the grave for our justification, defeating death, and declaring that He was the Son of God. See, this is why we should love church. It's not to make me feel better, or you feel better. It's because we serve a risen Savior who died for our sins and saved us. So the call to the unbeliever today is repent of your sins and believe upon Him. Don't sit here and hear the gospel preached and let it fall on deaf ears. And don't think for a moment that it's by accident that any of us are here. God has you here to hear the message. And the call is to believe upon Christ. Today is the day. To the believer. <clears throat> Our message of faith and repentance, I think, is clear from the text. You overwhelmingly conquer, and nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. So live like it. Believe this message.
I mean, really believe it. Believe that anything the world throws at you cannot separate you from Christ. Christ has you secure. He says, Jesus says, John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. And in John, in the same chapter, verse 39 and 40, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Those that think that you can lose your salvation must deal with these texts. They're very clear. John 10, 27, 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Jesus will not fail in this. That's the amazing part of it. It's, it rests on the faithfulness and power of Jesus, not you, for you to be secure. If you're secure in Christ, you can rest in Christ unless somebody can come and defeat Christ. You're safe and secure in his hands. And he will not fail. He cannot fail. So believe this. Don't go about doubting when Christ has said things about you, these things about you, Christian. If you believe the gospel, you're his. Even on the worst, your worst days. Even on the days that everything has gone wrong. I've done everything I could to fail. You're still his. In those days, what do you do? You repent and you move on in hope, not in guilt. God has declared you not guilty, therefore you're not guilty. You are safe. Now believe that and repent of looking to your works when you fail and start doubting. I said it the other day, but in Romans 1.17, when it says, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. This is not an introspective faith. It's not, it's not meaning that we look within ourselves. We don't look within ourselves. We don't live like that. We don't live by looking within ourselves. I know there's a bunch of preachers out there that like to preach this every Sunday. That you're failing, you're not doing enough, lace up your bootstraps and get to work. All of this stuff. And that might be true, but that's not our focus. That's not what our focus should be. Our focus, my focus should not be on the fact that I failed. Or that I'm not doing enough. Actually, this just came up a few weeks ago. A brother who was struggling with... Pornography said, I need to focus on it to get, and I said, ah, you don't focus on that. You focus on Christ. You don't focus on that sin. Forget that sin. Focus on Christ. You focus on that sin, you're going back to it. We don't live introspectively. Our focus, our faith, the just shall live by faith. Our faith looks to Jesus, who when we're failing, we're not doing enough, or falling, He keeps us secure. I can rest in Him. He keeps me safe. 
That's who you should be looking to, not your sin. Don't look within for your Christian walk. That's what, that's what Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. Don't look within for your Christian walk. Look without to the one who saved you from yourself and to himself. So let's rest in him for our security and not our works. And I know this, I know this comes up, even in the, the most, if you will, good and faithful Christians. Sometimes when we have those bad days, we, and, then, and then at the end of the day, we stub our toe. And we think, that was God's punishment. Right? Or we, we wreck our car or something. That's God's punishing me for those sins I did. Well, that's a denial of the gospel. Because the gospel tells me that Jesus Christ took every single one of my sins, even the ones that I haven't even done yet. And they're all gone. And God doesn't punish me at all. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't punish me. He might chastise me, correct me, but he does not punish me. So let's rest in him for our security, not our works. So let's repent of the false, that false teaching, or false thinking too, and rest in him. The last thing here, our call to war. Let me take a drink. I have two things in this call to war that I see glaring from our text. Now there's obviously probably more than that in there. But two main things. First one, A, it gives us a picture of marriage. And therefore we are called to do the same. And like I said before, just because you're single here does not mean that this does not apply to you. Nothing shall divorce you from Christ. Nothing shall divorce you from your spouse. Christ is a picture of the husband. And men, that's our picture. That's our picture. Our picture is of Christ as the husband. In Romans 8, who is the one to make sure the marriage is secure? The husband. And nothing will separate the two. So what does this mean for us? It means that we give our lives for our brides. Not just when I'm not at work. Or, you know, I'm watching a sporting event, honey, leave me alone. Or playing some video game. Or whatever we may do in our spare time. It's every single day. It's every single day, men. She... Your wife has been given to you by God to love, feed, and protect her. It actually says in Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, I don't even think Amanda knows this, but I memorized that verse even before I knew her. I memorized it in Hebrew, but I was trying to learn Hebrew. Hebrew is very tough, and I never, I never learned it. But it says, matzah isha matzah tov. And I, I would say that to myself, and you know, I was sitting there at night, like, I don't know how to find a wife, and I say, matzah isha. God has something for me. However, though, it says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is true of you and your wife, men. You have found a good thing. 
and obtain favor from the Lord. So we should act like it. Do you think for a second God gave you a wife to disrespect her? To not love her? Not only this, but if your wife's a believer, and I believe all of the ones in here are, she's a daughter of the Most High. How'd you treat God's daughter? She's not your property, but God's property. And we're accountable for her. Can you imagine standing before God on the last day and answering for being disrespectful or unloving to his daughter that he gave to you? I tell you, I have a daughter that's married. And surely would not like to hear about my son-in-law being disrespectful to her or unloving to her. I would not like that at all. And I'm not righteous and holy. And I'm not the perfect lawgiver. I don't have the power or authority to end him. God does. And God has granted you. It says, obtains favor. That's grace. He's given you a grace in your wife. The picture is given in Ephesians of Christ and His church. I want us to think, when our wife does something that we don't agree with, which is like every day, just kidding. <laughs> but when your wife does something you don't agree with, when even she might sin against you, how does Christ treat His church when we do this to Him? Does He crush us? Then act according to that. Look to Christ and His church. That's our picture, and that's our command as husbands. The second part of this is B, A, and now B. If nothing anybody does to us can separate us from the love of Christ, be bold. Nothing anybody does can separate you from the love of Christ. Be bold. Be courageous. Be strong. We can stand before judges and magistrates here, and they can do nothing but what our God has decreed that they do to us. And if He has decreed it, it's for our good. If He has caused it to happen, as it says in Romans 8, 28, that He works all things together for our good. So even if I stand before a judge or magistrate because I'm out here preaching the gospel and laying down my life for Christ, He can do nothing. Unless God decreed it. So if you're out here preaching like we did last month and the police showed up, even if we would have got arrested, we should still be bold and courageous. Christ is there in a jail cell with you. If you're in Him. He's with us always, as it says. Even unto the end of the earth. He's not going anywhere. Therefore, be bold for the truth. And I don't just mean on social media. What, what, what are they called? Keyboard warriors? You'd be bold, you'd be bold behind a computer screen, but not bold when you're sitting across the table from somebody. The scriptures say the righteous are as bold as a lion. You think a lion just sitting behind a computer screen trying to catch a gazelle? 
Righteous are as bold as a lion. A lion doesn't care what you think when it's going after a gazelle. A lion doesn't care what the gazelle thinks. You know what a lion's focus is? I'm going to eat. And it says that's what we're going to be if we're righteous. If we're in Christ, we're going to be that bold. One focus. And I don't care what you think. I don't care if you're standing alongside saying all kinds of stupid stuff about me. i got one focus. It's on Christ. And I'm going after him. And I'm preaching him. And you can do whatever you want to me. And I, as your pastor, ask you to be more bold for him. Don't wait until we have an outreach. Oh, we can't, we can't go preach because we need that, the church to schedule an outreach. And, and praise God, we've been having outreaches like once a month. But what happens all that other time? All those other days that, I, as I always say, 150,000 people will die. Be bold in your everyday. When you're at the grocery store, when you're at work, when you're at home, he's worthy of it all, isn't he? So I'll close with one of my favorite quotes. And this quote comes from two men that they sold themselves into slavery so they could go preach the gospel to slaves. And when they were on the ship, after they sold themselves into slavery, they were on the ship and they, they, they called back and said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of the suffering. And they are never heard from again. Is that not boldness? And may he use us to that same end. Amen.